I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. No commercials, no foundation sponsors, 100% crowdfunded since 2010. If you want to support this kind of radio and get early access to the shows, please go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the Mediterranean bioregion, where I moved after escaping from the, um, what, what shall we call it, the belly of the proverbial beast, I guess, in North America, which is now suffering under blizzard conditions, while I uh, bicycle around in not Saidia, Morocco, but actually Tarragona, Spain, where I'm visiting my friend Jonathan Ravuski, and we uh, bicycled uh, 40 miles yesterday through the mountains to a monastery, and uh, somehow I'm still able to pick myself up, dust myself off, and, and do the radio show. All right, today we're going to talk a little bit about Islam. And of course, uh, here in Tarragona, we're right on the border where the so-called Reconquista, where the, the Christians took back the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslims, happened. So it's a good night to talk about Islam-related topics in the second hour. John Andrew Mora was supposed to come on to talk about his new book on Islam and slavery, but he's unable to make it. Uh, among other reasons, there's a blizzard hitting his neck of the woods. So Charles Upton, who collaborated with John Andrew Mora on the Covenants of the Prophet Initiative, will stand in for John. Charles Upton is a noted beatnik poet turned Sufi Muslim. Okay, and then before we get going in the first hour, let me just quickly say that Revolution.Radio could use a little bit of help. It's This is not me. I don't get any money from this. It has nothing to do with keeping Kevin Barrett and TruthJihad.com and all of that going. But Revolution Radio, the network we're broadcasting on live, could use a few donations to stay on the air. So if you go to Revolution.Radio, that's not a .com or a .net or anything like that. It's a .radio, Revolution.Radio. And check out the box at the top of the network's homepage. You'll see how you can donate and keep this station on the air doing totally free speech. All right. First, our guest, Blake Archer Williams, studied with Hamid Algar at the University of California, Berkeley. Hamid Algar is one of the most accomplished and esteemed North American Islamic scholars. I guess he was from Britain originally, and he ended up um, leaning towards a Shia interpretation of Islam. Blake Archer Williams uh, took that up and has been pumping out a long list of books on topics related to Shia Islam. And he's, he's in Iran, has been for quite some time among the books, The Creedal Foundations of Walayak Islam. And uh, I could go on with that list of books uh, for quite some time. And I guess Blake will mention the ones that he wants to mention, but he has a new one out on Rational and Scriptural Proofs for the Validity of the Principle of Majority Rule in Islam by Masood Imami. And Blake Archer-Williams is the translator, and he's written an introduction, and that leads to the question of Islam and democracy. A lot of folks think that democracy is a sacred cow. It's a, an idol, a false uh, object of worship. Uh, many Muslims think that way. Other Muslims think, hey, democracy is actually a perfectly reasonable way of making political decisions, as long as you don't idolatrously worship it, uh, it's a good means. It's not maybe not a good end, but it's a reasonably good means of government. So there's a big debate in Islam around that. And uh, 
uh, of course, we're going to debate on it. We're going to talk about Islam and slavery, hopefully, in the next hour a little bit. But Islam and democracy is a big topic, and a brand new scholarly Islamic book is out about that. So let's talk to the uh, translator and author of the introduction, Blake Archer Williams. Welcome, Blake. How are you? Assalamu alaikum. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kevin. It's good to be on. Yeah, good to have you back. Um, so, uh, Islam and democracy. You know, all we ever hear in the West is democracy, democracy. We have to go fight for democracy and, you know, we have to liberate Russia from the Putin dictatorship so it can have democracy. We have to liberate Iran from the mullahs so it can have democracy. We have to charge around the world uh, attacking countries that stand in the way of our imperial interests ostensibly for the sake of democracy, even though we are perfectly cozy with lots of radically anti-democratic regimes in places where we can make some money. So anyway, uh, I mean, that's the discourse <laughs> in the West. Um, and then you're taking this right. topic on from a totally different perspective. So you can go ahead and, and introduce that. Okay. Well, I was, in, I was, I was interested to read just yesterday. There was a post on X, uh, uh, quoting a study, uh, in Princeton University. I don't know if you came across it where, uh, it, uh, the study stated that public opinion in the United States has zero or statistically insignificant impact on policymakers. I in, saw that. In yeah, yeah. Peter Turchin made much of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so much for democracy. But I mean, like you say, I, I, I'm coming from at it, at it from a completely dis- different perspective because um, as you know, I mean, I'm, I made a decision to move out, uh, of America. You know, they said, love it or leave it. So I left it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's kind of uh, where I'm at too. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were smarter than that. Yeah. You beat me by 30 years. <laughs> no, no, 14 years. Oh, only 14. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I left, uh, after the, uh, 2008 crash, you know, uh, I, cause I, I, I figured, that was just the the the, the pre shock to the, the big crash, and it still hasn't come. But anyway, well, what you, but, your um, first your first you got really good, Blake, because when I first met you in Tehran in like twenty twelve mm-hmm. twenty thirteen, uh, you yeah. were already speaking Farsi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I uh, I learned uh, Farsi or Persian, as I prefer to call it, but Farsi is fine. <laughs> Um, it's like the difference between Dutch and Deutsch, you know, I mean, uh, German and Deutsch. But anyway, um, I, I, you know, I studied, uh, Persian and Arabic, uh, at Berkeley, like you say. And, uh, but ever since I've come here, of course, I've become much more fluent and have a, a better, but better grasp on the vocabulary. But, um, when I came here, I was interested in learning about the, the polity, you know, the, the constitutional, order of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and uh, so uh, my research led me to uh, the, the best book on the subject, which was written by Ayatollah Javadi Amali. Uh, and the only way that I could understand it was to translate it, you know, because it was written at a high level of, uh, you know, graduate students of the home seminary. And, and you know, for, for a good 10 years, um, all of my output um, was in that same line, which was the traditionalist line, which is uh, for, for the Shia that uh, that's Waliq Islam, 
And I can, you know, we'll get into what wali means and wali and awliya and wilaya. That's a key term to understanding the traditionalist position. Um, but um, about three years ago, um, I, I started kind of becoming a little disenchanted with uh, the, um, the authorities here. Um, and um, also I, my reading, I, I, I delved into philosophy and specifically the history of skepticism. And uh, so to long, make a long story short, um, I uh, kind of transitioned from a strictly kind of fundamentalist interpretation of Islam to a to a non-fundamentalist one. You know, that well, not, that's probably not, a better that transition than some of the transitioning that goes on these days in the West. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't I don't want to imply that I went from fundamentalism to, you know, Postmodernism or relativism or anything like that. Um, I mean, I still, uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, kind of ontological absolutist and moral absolutist and a moral realist. But, um, uh, epistemologically, uh, I, I like to think I have kind of more, a little bit more, uh, um, humility or haya, you know, <laughs> because, um, Especially in the Shia tradition, you know, we're, we're living in the age of uh, post-occultation age where the 12th Imam is in occultation. So uh, we don't have access to um, inerrant um, knowledge uh, by definition. Uh, and so that um, gives one pause as to you know, how sure one can be about one's beliefs and how uh, one is to li live one's life. And so I came to see things as, as a spectrum of uh, uh, dogma on one one side of the spectrum and and aporia or hater, uh, 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 hater, uh, you know, a state of um, constant confusion of, or, of, and of questioning of questions without answers on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, there's a Sufi tradition of that, by the way, as I'm sure you know, that the the uh, state yeah. of confusion is one of the highest states in Sufism. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's similarly in, in Buddhism as well. Uh, you know, as, as, uh, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that much about Buddhism, but I recently read that uh, uh, from a friend uh, uh, that, um, uh, you know, Buddhist, uh, a certain type of Buddhism considers uh uh, paradox uh, to uh, to be an integral part of you know nature or the fabric of being. Well, that would be the answer to the riddle of what's the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so um, yeah. So so I uh, I translated this book because it's actually written by a friend of mine. Uh, one one other book of who's I'd already translated um, because I wanted to um, uh, have at least one book, uh, you know, uh, telling the other side of the coin, because in, in the Islamic Republic, you know, there's this uh, debate uh, ever since the revolution between the reformists and uh, the um, uh, principalists. Uh, uh, and uh, that, that, you know, finds its way in, in, in all 
uh, parts of society and in the, and, the, and in the, it, it's all, the contradictions between these two positions are in the constitution itself. And, uh, and, you know, and the reason for it, uh, we can get into that if, uh, but, um, I, I wanted to have a contribution, um, to the other side of the debate as well, because all, Almost 50 books, I guess I have, uh, um, are uh, on the on the on the traditionalist side so far. Wow! So it's 50 to one in favor of tra- traditionalism. <laughs> yeah, but this, this this one's gonna knock. It's a knockout book. Oh man! And, so the uh, one you know, the one beats the 50. Wow. <laughs> no, I mean no. The whole thing is is that there's no right or wrong position in my opinion. I mean they're both. See, one of one of they're both based on each of them is based on a different um, uh, um, principle. One is based on the principle of uh, the discovery of truth, and the other one is based on uh, the principle of the right to self-determination. Uh, both of which are thoroughly Islamic. It's just that you know, like. Like uh, the empiricist, it's the, like the debate between the empiricists and the rationalists in, in the modern era of Western philosophy, where it's not so much, you know, uh, the question of which one is right. It's just that like the empiricists uh, uh, favor the faculty of uh, experience or the senses, whereas the rationalists ex- uh, favor the faculty of under, uh, of reason or, or or intellection. So it's a matter of emphasis, you know. And um, so um, yeah, maybe we should introduce the, those two points for the listeners. That is that the basic idea behind the schools of uh, of the search for truth that the principalists favor and the uh, uh, self-determination principle that the other side favors. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, uh, first, uh, I think it's. It, you know, we, we can take a step back and look at the big picture. And the big picture is the issue, the, you know, the overarching issue of uh, fixity and change. Uh, you know, and and and, and this uh, applies to the Islamic world as well as to you know, in Western philosophy, you know, in in the pre-Socratics, you had this be, uh, between Parmenides and on one hand, and Heraclitus on the other. In the classical period, uh, it, it manifested itself in, um, in, in in Platonism on one hand, and um, in uh, atomism or Democritus's philosophy on the other. And you know, with Aristotle being trying to mediate a middle ground. And then in the modern era, it's the rationalists and the empiricists. And um, um, now, in, in the Islamic world. Um, revelation comes into this. Uh, so in addition to, you know, reason and the senses. So, uh, it's a question of how revelation, uh, is to be interpreted, uh, given, you know, a changing world. And, and, and so, uh, what I said in this, in the, in the preface, uh, was that there, you know, there's a spectrum where on the one hand, uh, the, the way the Sunnis dealt with this issue was to say that um, uh, that the revelation, uh, as interpreted by the four different madhabs or the uh, religious legal rights, um, 
uh, is fixed until the end of time. So they basically denied that there was they, they denied change, or at least they denied uh, that there was sufficient uh, that, that change was sufficiently significant to warrant any change in that interpretation. And then on the other extreme were the Ismailis, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, a major branch within Shia Islam. Uh, and they, uh, denied, uh, um, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't deny change. They, they denied that revelation had ended, uh, because after the death of the prophet, they believed that, uh, there was a succession of imams that were divinely commissioned to interpret that revelation and the Quranic dispensation. And um, they believe that this line of the imamate, the Ismaili imamate, continues to this day. So they have inerrant um, interpretation of uh, uh, revelation. Um, so they, uh, that's how they dealt with the issue, saying that uh, um, revelation hasn't ended. There is change, but uh, there is an in, inerrant in interpretation uh, and exegesis uh, available. And the Shia position or the Twelver Shia position, uh, you know, they, held a, they hold a precarious position between the two. Um, up to the occultation of the Twelfth Imam, they were similar to the Ismailis in, in maintaining that there is, uh, that, that you know, revelation has ended, but the divine favor hasn't ended in that there is immaculate or inerrant uh, interpretation available. And then after the occultation, which was uh, a major occultation uh, ended, I think it was 329 of the uh, um, Islamic era. Um, I forget what, how that, uh, yeah, that'd be like in the 960s to. or something. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something like that in the 10th century. Um, and, and then after that, uh, they basically, um, uh, over a gra- gradual period of two or three centuries became Sunnified, you know, with the, with, uh, with the, uh, ulama taking the position, uh, taking the place of the imams as authorities, leg- uh, as legitimate authorities for interpretation, but, but not as inerrant authorities. And so, uh, it was uh, it was reliance on the hadith of the uh, imams plus the Quran that they used as their sources for uh, uh, legislation. Um, so uh, and uh, and then within the Shia tradition, you, you had this other split. You had the Akhbaris and the Usulis, uh, with, with the Akhbaris being the literalists and the Usulis being rationalists. Uh, that uh, will believe that uh, uh, reason uh, could reasonably arrive at, uh, you know, uh, interpretations of uh, revelation that, uh, you know, were reasonable and that could uh, res- respond to the needs of uh, the ummah or the community. And the Akhbaris uh, basically are, are almost extinct. Uh, the um, uh, um, the Safavids, uh, the ulama during the Safavid period, the mid, mid, mid to late Safavid period, put an end to them. They persecuted them and killed them. And, and, and that, I think that, the only that place was what, they, like, uh, like four or five hundred years ago, right? Uh, maybe three or four hundred. Okay. 
I'm not exactly sure, about maybe 300 years ago. And uh, the, I think the only place that uh, Akhbaris, still, I mean, there are some Akhbaris, very few in Iran, but uh, I think mainly they're in uh, Bahrain, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then, and then, so within the Usuli tradition, then there's where we finally get to this principalist reformist split. And um, like I said, one of them, the, the principalist is based on a, on they have two different bases. Uh, one is the principle of the discovery of truth, which is meritocratic, and the other one is the right to self-determination, which is democratic. And both of them are based on the Quran and the Hadith. Um, and you know, um, let's remind people quickly, quickly, this, this does correspond to the political split in Iran. It's not just a theological philosophical split, but the principalists tend to be grouped as one yeah. political group versus the, the reformists uh, on the other side. Right, right. Uh, yes, because, of course, uh, Islam is a is a political uh, religion in the sense that it's a social political meaning social. Uh, uh, religion, because man is a social animal, and and Quran, of course, addresses uh, social as well as individual needs. Uh, so, um, so Islam is is you know, uh, I guess almost by definition, uh, um, uh, political. Uh, of course, there's there, like in the Shia Islam, there's been the quietest tradition, you know, like in, in Najaf. The seminary at Najaf, they're still uh, alive and kicking. But of course, after the revolution, you know, in Qom, uh, uh, officially anyway, uh, it's uh, the quietism has gone uh, to the wayside. It's gone uh, very quiet. (laughs) Yeah, but of course, you know, I mean... uh, I mean, it depends on who you ask. Uh, I, I mean, I've lived here about 14 years now, and uh, I still have a hard time uh, figuring out truly uh, whether the quietists are in the majority and on the, on the ascendant in Qom, or whether it's the uh, politicized, you know, line of the imam, as they say. You know, really? So I mean, there's still a elite. significant number of these quietists. They're just keeping kind oh, of quiet about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, a friend of mine who, uh, um, who, who was in a position to know, uh, says that the, the vast majority of them are against, uh, the, um, at least, I mean, if they're not quietest, they're at least against the, uh, political order, uh, you know, in, in, of, of, you know, the ulama dirtying their hands in politics and, they're, they're, they're not with the uh, with the Islam, uh, Islamic Republic, uh, but you know, you if you listen to the uh, the news and the official in the newspapers and stuff, uh, that's it's, it's it's the exact opposite. And and there's no uh, real transparency, so it's difficult to uh, to, to tell uh, what the actual case is. There could be a whole lot of quietness, but because they're all quiet, we we. Don't know how many. Uh. <laughs> well, no, I mean they're not they're not necessarily quiet about their quietism. Um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you can be militantly quiet, no, noisy not, quietness. Not, you, know, you, can, yeah. you can be you can be vocal but not active politically. You yeah, know, you yeah. can be vocal against being active. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because they're, they're, <laughs> if it ever reached the point that you get. Yeah, you could have like the one, yeah. the one non-quietist running the show because 
all of the others would would not want to dirty their hands. Right. It's it's almost like a self defeating position, you know. Uh, um, uh, it's like the, the uh, those, those sects that that uh, uh, you know the, the Gnostics that refused to procreate because they didn't want to want to uh, continue the uh, the 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 demons uh, world as crypt scenario and so they went extinct because they didn't reproduce (laughs) and quite as but but the majority of the you know the the millennial tradition i mean has been quietest it was only after imam Khomeini uh in the uh uh, late 60s and 70s uh, came up with his position of uh that uh he gained a big following, and then after the revolution, of course, they uh, triumphed, triumphed over the nationalists and the communists and and whoever else there was that uh, entered the um, uh, um, power struggle or the civil war, if you want to call it that, uh, and, and after the the vacuum, the power vacuum that resulted after the Shah left. Right. So. Uh, would you, do you want me to talk about the, uh, see, cause in this introduction, I talk about the traditionalist position. You know, I, I give a brief expose of that, which is based on the principle of self, uh, of, uh, the discovery of truth, uh, uh which is a meritocratic position. And then I, I go, I level several criticisms against it. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's do that. And, and, you know, let, let me just, you know, lay out sort of, sort of what I understand as that meritocratic position about search for truth, which, which is that, you know, truth is truth, whether, you know, like if you have a hundred people and 99 believe the lie and only one believes the truth. And that's pretty much been the situation, you know, with 9-11 truth movement started out that way back in fall of 2001. Uh, but, you know, if the 99 people believe a lie, the one believes the truth doesn't make, you know, doesn't change the fact that truth is truth and lies is lies. And so ultimately, right. right ultimately, we, we're searching, we're searching for truth and the majority is likely to be wrong. And indeed, there's scriptural, uh, there's scriptural evidence in the Quran that, you know, the, the, the most people are, are, you know, deluded and, and vain and so on and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. So what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, there isn't anything wrong with that, uh, um, uh, but uh, there are certain, uh, um, but that's only, you know, uh, uh, one side of the picture or one side of the coin. Uh, that's, that's, you know, it goes back to Plato's Republic, you know, where uh, he uh, advocated for the philosopher king on the basis that, uh, you know, the philosopher who is in a is in a much better position to know to have access to the truth to discover the truth uh in a, any given situation or, or state of affairs uh relative to the average person who doesn't know anything who can't read you know during his his day who can't write whatever uh, so uh, that makes sense i mean uh um, uh it has is a question of uh, being competent uh to make the best uh uh, evaluation with respect to what the truth is or what is the best solution in a given situation. Uh, that makes perfect sense. And, um, and, and it's, and, and it's, it's also very Islamic. You know, God has a certain, um, uh, I mean, he made the way in a, the world in a certain way. 
he, he made man in a certain way and gave him a, a, a primordial disposition or fitra uh, that is integrally uh, related to the way in which the world is made. And both of those are um, integrally related to God's will and way, and the, the way in which uh, that he has in mind for us to live in order to uh, attain to our perfections, uh, in, in order to, to, for us to flourish and, and, and to attain to our perfection. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, from, from the Shia perspective, the, the people who best embody that, uh, that way, uh, Mashiach, and uh, 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 who, who have the moral character that is closest to, uh, you know, God's will, uh, um, uh, those are the awliya, you know, and, and that com- comes from the, uh, from the triliteral root uh, walaya, which means like, uh, uh, it means closeness, and it's, it's so close as to be touching, so um I forget the English word for it, but anyway. Um, um, so, and then, and then, and then, this closeness in turn makes them luminous. It gives their character a certain luminosity, which attracts uh, the the masses of the people to them. So, their character is um, attractive to God, which who who um, appoints them as uh, leaders for. Uh, the community uh, and as divine guides, uh, because you know it's, uh, um, Islam responds to two needs: one of which is uh, the need of, to worship, and the other one is the need for guidance. And uh, and then uh, the moral character, together with uh, superior knowledge of God's way, uh, uh, gives the, gives them uh, primacy or preeminence or afdaliya. And um, uh, and and the wilaya that they have as a result of this, which is the abstract noun of wali and awliya, which is a plural, uh, is uh, uh, can be defined as the divinely bestowed and legitimated authority, uh, which is meritocratic. It's based on merit, uh, and but it, that stands sharply at odds with the democratic conception of legitimate authority. Now. Um, where that comes in is um, uh, the principle of the right to self-determination, which is based on, I think it's uh, Aya uh, 287 or, two, yeah, 287 of uh, Surat al-Baqarah, uh, uh, which is the famous Aya of La Ikraha Fiddin, uh, no let compulsion. there be, or there shall be no compulsion in religion, right? Right. Um, so... Um, so it's a question of these two different princi- uh, principles or bases uh, that, that are both Islamic, uh, but uh, and kind of somewhat being at odds with each other. On the one hand, uh, uh, you know, meritocracy makes perfect sense. On the other hand, it doesn't make sense if you um, uh, impose that that uh, um, th- those rulings. Uh, uh, on uh, that are uh, you know based uh, in this meritocratic uh, order of knowledge and 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 um, uh, 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 superior moral character 
on on to others without their consent. That, that, that's, that, let, that's let me, let that me briefly question uh, that interpretation. Uh, as I understand it from, you know, I, I haven't studied the Shia tradition. A lot of what you say about Walaya is, is similar, like, especially in the Sufi tradition, there's a whole discourse in Walaya. But yeah. in any case, the uh, idea that la ikraha fiddin, or no compulsion in religion, means that there can't be any compulsion uh, whatsoever based on religion. I believe that that's, I don't think there's, there are a lot of people that interpret it that way in Sunni Islam, at least. I think that the majority interpretation of that has always been that the main import of la ikraha fidin, or no compulsion in religion, is that you can't do forced conversions, that everybody gets, you know, you, you can't tell tell people to change their religion yeah. and so on. However, yeah. Nobody has ever said that you shouldn't be, uh, you know, when you see, when you, when you see something wrong, you correct it with your hand if you possibly can. And then if not with your tongue, and if, if that doesn't work, well, hating the evil with your heart is the least of faith, which means that when you see something wrong, you correct it with your hand. And the wrong or right of it is determined indeed by, uh, in part by the revelation and, and religion and so on. So there's nobody who's ever said that religion shouldn't be the basis of coercive authority, is there? Uh, no, not in Sunni Islam. Uh, and, uh, of course, Shia Islam, uh, uh, was always, um, uh, you know, a, a, a marginalized, heretical, uh, uh, fringe movements from the Sunni perspective, uh, that, that was basically a majoritarian, uh, um, position that, um, um, uh, you know, pledged, uh, allegiance to, uh, the, uh, the caliphs, uh, of the time, irrespective of, you know, I mean, after the, you know, they came up with this theory of the four rightly guided caliphs. You know, after the fact, uh, but, uh, um, because after a while it became evident that, uh, some of the behavior of the caliphs could no longer be, uh, tolerated or justified. Right, right. But, but, but apart from all that, the question of compulsion of religion, this just notion that, you know, whether they're doing it right or not, that ultimately, uh, the religion is meant to be, you know, the source of, uh, of, you know, coercive law. Right. Well, I mean, that, that's what the whole debate here in Iran is 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 about. Uh, I mean, the principalists basically have become Sunnis, and and they they take that position. They take that uh, the position that their authority is not to be questioned. You know, uh, uh, that they have a yaqeen instead of certainty. You know, they have certainty instead of uh, zan or personal opinion. You know, uh, which is the difference between doxa and epistem in Greek, uh, or personal opinion and, uh, actual knowledge or certain knowledge. Um, and, um, uh, the, uh, the reformers, uh, criticized them on several grounds that, uh, you know, no, you don't have certain knowledge. You know, I mean, how, how do you have certain knowledge? You know, and, and like, for example, uh, Ayatollah Javadi Amoli, who, um, as you know, I mean, he's the he's the guy whose book I translated. He, you know, he had the best book on uh, the whole uh, issue of Velayat uh, Fari. I mean, he's kind of distanced himself a little bit over uh, over the last uh, ten or 
so years from from the political order uh, because of you know just just the way that their you know their vision more than anything maybe their you know financial malfeasance or whatever. Um, but like his interpretation of that particular ayah, uh, and he would agree with you that in the Sunni tradition uh, that that's how it's interpreted. But his interpretation is that it should be translated not as uh, as uh, let there be no compulsion in religion or there shall be no compulsion in religion. The way he translates it is that um, uh, that there can be no compulsion in religion. In other words, it's a logical impossibility. In other words, if you're, for example, if you're put on the torture rack, like in the, you know, uh, a la uh, the Inquisition, and uh, uh, even if you wanted to believe what your inquisitors uh, are demanding that you believe, you can't force yourself to believe it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, so there can be no compulsion in religion. Mm-hmm. You see, that's his interpretation. And um, and of course, you know, the Shias have. Uh, uh, I mean, that's not the uh, consensus opinion, but um, uh, most of the Shia interpreters um, believe that um, uh, they don't interpret it the same way that the Sunnis do. And they believe that uh, that uh, uh, ayah uh, means that uh, one cannot be uh, compelled uh, to accept Islam, uh, even if uh, he is a, a pagan, you know, a, a mushrik or a or a, or a kafir, uh, uh, let alone you know uh, uh, one of the people of uh, the book, you know, Ahlul Kitab. Right. Right. Yeah. The Sunnis have a pretty good record of, of not doing forced conversions of people of the book and a, a my okay, but, but not perfect record regarding pagans. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I can't speak to that. I mean, I've heard, I haven't researched it in detail. I mean, in my days at Berkeley, I remember reading, for example, Richard Bulliet's uh, view from the edge where, uh, uh, that had recently been, uh, released. He was a, he's a professor at Columbia where he put the thesis forward that was, go, you know, going against the grain of the origin, you know, the Orientalist tradition that Islam is a religion of the sword and all that nonsense. Um, and, uh, and then of course there was, um, the fact that there, there was an economic incentive for, uh, for the um, Muslims not to convert the native population because it would dilute the uh, the distribution from the um, the treasury, you know, the stipends. I forget what the Islamic word for it is. Um, but um, you know, I'm 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 not a, a, an expert on that subject, so right. well, I, I don't in, know. In broad brushstrokes, we just looking at history where I am now in Tarragona, Spain. When the Muslims ruled Spain, there were very large and thriving, prosperous non-Muslim communities. And then when the Christians took back Spain, they, you know, they forced converted and or expelled the non-Christians. And that's just a slightly extreme, not, you know, slightly extreme example of what pretty much all the European Christians did. They didn't tolerate other religions on their territory. And Islamic polities virtually always have. 
I think that's, I mean, there's, that's true, but I, I, you have to balance that also. Like, for example, um, uh, um, it, um, if, if they, if that was a hundred percent true, uh, then, uh, People's, uh, you know, sacred uh, places or places of worship, such as, for example, Hagia Sophia in in uh, Constantinople, would still be a Christian church. But of course, that was converted to a mosque. Well, well, yeah. And, and Imran says that was a terrible crime and totally against Islamic tradition to do that. And indeed, there are cases uh-huh. where where Muslims have uh, not, you know, changed uh, the church. Most cases, I think they had they didn't. Um, destroy the yeah. uh, places of worship. But and, they're and, commanded and, to, to protect the places of worship of the other religions. Right. And of course, the most important one, of course, is the, is the, uh, is the Dome of the Rock, you know, I mean, this, this war in, in, in Palestine. Um, I mean, it's just a crazy situation. Um, on the one hand, you have these uh, colonialists uh, from Europe coming in, you know, and, and colonizing, colonizing a, a land with a people under the pretext of that it's, you know, it's land for, for people for, you know, without a land or whatever the hell that is. Nonsense. Um, but, um, th- having done so, uh, they respect, uh, or have at least until, uh, recently, uh, you know, with the rise of the Kahanists, uh, they respected, uh, the, the, um, the fact that uh, you know, the Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, and, uh, it belongs to the Muslims, uh, which is more than what the Muslims did, uh, when they, uh, conquered Constantinople, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, for a long time, I, I was of the uh, opinion that, um, uh, that, uh, that should be given back to the Jews. Because uh, as Muslims, what we did was un-Islamic, and we had no right to do that. Yeah, but, but we didn't now, take it from the Jews. There was there was no Jewish temple there. Uh, there was no Jewish temple during the Islamic conquest of uh, Palestine. Not, not no, not where the Meshul Aqsa is. The Meshul Aqsa was built on most likely what was well, it had been a Roman garrison, uh, hilltop garrison. And very likely this, uh, today's Jewish legend that the Jewish big temple was there is mistaken. But if that were true, that temple had been torn down, uh, for many centuries previously. So when, when the yeah. Muslims built the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they built it on a site that I think they, some of the archaeologists now think that it might have been, uh, there some kind of, uh, like, um, living space or dormitory or something associated with some kind of group. But it was certainly not a case of tearing down another, uh, religion's, uh, holy building and putting up your own. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know which one is correct. Obviously, the, 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 the Zionists, uh, uh, would, you know, beg to differ with you. Well, no, but no, I mean, they, I, the, I, the Zionists would say their temple was there 500 plus years before the Muslims got there, but it, it disappeared 500 plus years before the Muslims ever got there. The Zionists right, do not yeah, blame the Muslims I mean, for tearing anything down. The, 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 the sacking of the, in 70 AD then, right? Right. right. Yeah. Uh, but what I was going to say was that, you know, uh, you know, is, Israeli Judaism, uh, bec- uh, having become what it is today, uh, which is, you know, basically a, a rabid bunch of genocidal maniacs. I mean, they don't deserve to be given any, anything. I mean, they don't, they, they, 
they have no place in human society as far as I'm concerned. Right. And, but, and you know, um, it, I know. But if you want to segue a little bit to the, 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 that topic and, and the topic of this changing of the guard in that, you know, famously the 1979 Islamic revolution led by the principalist, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, yeah. uh, has, they've yeah. considered, um, the U.S. and Israel the great Satan and the little Satan. I think they might have gotten that mixed up. It's, you know, Israel might be the great Satan. Uh, but in, in any case. The jury's out on that. Yeah. Yeah, jury's out. But, but mean, things are changing. This, the, the world dominated by the great little Satan looks like it's getting pretty shaky. You just wrote about, or you just uh, sent out uh, an email about Pepe Escobar's new review of Emmanuel Todd's book, The Defeat of the West. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, uh, I, uh, I, I read it. I read the, the, the review, of course. It was a, it was a brief summary. Um, I mean, I don't uh, remember too much about it. And of course, uh, one hasn't read the book yet because, it's, uh, unlike you, I don't, uh, have, uh, knowledge of French, but you, you have the advantage of being able to read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, it talks about. Uh, it talks about. I mean, I can't talk at length about it. it but it, he, uh, Emmanuel Todd talked about uh, how uh, everything that the West uh, um, believes in nowadays is just simply not true. And, it, and, and according to Pepe, he uh, uh, backs it up with uh, you know empirical facts and statistics and data. Um, whether it's the Ukraine war. Or, uh, you know, what the neocons have done to U.S. Uh, policy, uh, what they've done to Europe, you know, the deindustrialization of Europe. Um, right. Isn't he, talks about, he points out that, that Russia has something like 5% or some tiny fraction of the GDP of the Western bloc opposed to it. And yet it's right. massively out manufacturing its, uh, its opponent. How, how can that happen? Well, one of the things I think uh, that we talked about was this, um, you know, a, fi a financialized capital and, and how, you know, Wall Street uh, has uh, uh, gutted uh, the uh, uh, American economy uh, and taken it to what could be described as post-industrial. Um, and... Um, and, of course, whether, whether GDP itself is the right... Uh, um, metric to measure uh, that that brings that into question because um, I mean the West uh, is so much in shock that it's in denial about the fact that uh, that Russia has basically won the Ukraine war which isn't the Ukraine war it's a war against the whole of NATO and they've put everything that they've had into it uh, but uh, they they weren't able to defeat Russia and I guess the, those <laughs> drones from Iran. Didn't hurt either, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I give a, sh a shout out to those drones. But yeah, that's crazy that it's a war of attrition. You know, how can a country that's got five percent of the GDP of its enemies win a war of attrition? Uh, and, and not only that, but Russia's economy has been damaged less by this war than the West's economy. And and the whole point of the war was to destroy Russia's economy. The thought was that, oh, if we have this war, Russia's economy will collapse. We'll, we'll sanction the heck out of them and, and Russia will collapse. Everything's backwards here. And <laughs> how do you explain that? Yeah, I, I can't. Uh, I'll, the only thing I can add is that uh, I think um, uh 
Russia had the advantage of, um, you know, rather than marching through to, uh, to Kiev and conquering Kiev and uh, having to deal with the whole uprising and holding on to control of a whole nation, uh, what they did was they, they held on to a certain portion of it uh, and, and became entrenched and, uh, you know, uh, dug in their defenses. And so then the onus was on Ukraine and the West to dig them out of there. And of course, uh, you, uh, ha- you, um, suffer a lot more casualties, uh, when, uh, when you're offending against a well-defended position, you know, going on the offense against a well-defended position, then, uh, uh, you, you do when you're defending that position. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive in, in a lot of ways. And so this, uh, could be seen as a, a possible, you know, major defeat that will mark the fall of the West in, in future history books. Speaking of the future history, I, I just saw a piece in, I think it was the Atlantic that attempts to write the history of the Ukraine war. And so why would you write that history now? Well, it's an admission of defeat, basically. And what they're doing is writing a false history in which they're going to allow themselves to sort of declare a partial victory because uh, the Russians didn't manage to take uh, Kiev. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, it, 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 it doesn't, doesn't look good for the West, which means it doesn't look good for the Zionist entity squatting, squatting in occupied Palestine if its Western backers go under yeah, I mean, they keep on changing the narrative because they have control over the over, over the mainstream narrative, uh, even though with, you know, with social media and stuff, that control is, uh, to some extent, at least been taken away and eroded. But, they, you know, they, they keep changing the narrative shamelessly. And I think one of the significant uh, aspects of October 7th, who was it that said this? Uh, uh, forget, um, was that it is the end of hypocrisy. In other words, they've put away pretense, you know, uh, they, like, like Joe Biden was asked just yesterday, I think, you know, did, did, did your bombing of Yemen, uh, prevent them from continuing their, you know, their, their blockade, uh, blockade? And he said, no. And then they say, well, are you going to, are you going to continue to bomb them? Yes. <laughs> so right. wh- why are you going to continue to bomb them if it doesn't stop them from doing what they're doing? You know, instead of doing the genocide, they don't care anymore. They don't, you know, they've, they've put away the pretense, you know, war is not, not to, uh, fight for a just cause, but it's to, you know, if it's profitable, we're going to do it. And if it's not profitable, we're not going to do it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the uh, might makes right. Uh, laid bare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Netanyahu could say something similar, right? If somebody asks him, you know, is, is your murdering Palestinian women and children by the tens of thousands and blowing up the hospitals and, and the houses yeah. and apartments and the infrastructure and starving them, cutting off the food for the women and the children and turning off their electricity and so on. Is that, is that helping you win the war against Hamas? He might say, well, no. He said, well, are you going to continue doing it? He's going to say, hell yes. I mean, that's, that's being <laughs> yeah, for you. The point, the point, uh, the point isn't military victory. The point is genocide. 
You know? Exactly, exactly. And they, they actually think that uh, they're going to get away with it. And, and, and they, I mean, they want to ship 2.3 million people out of Palestine, of Gaza. And if they can't, then they, they'll kill them, you know. And I mean, stranger things have happened. I mean, they're, they're on the verge of, uh, of uh, starvation. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I don't exactly remember, you know, there's like four or five different grades of uh of uh crisis you know defined by the united nations sort of whatever the agency is in charge of all that and uh i mean it's it's this is un, unprecedented historically uh and uh you know they might do it and that's that's my concern is that you know uh, iran and the axis of resistance has had to play the long game of death by a thousand cuts because you know they're dealing with a couple of lunatics with nuclear weapons so the only thing you can do is uh do do that you know death by a thousand cuts and a war of attrition but at the same time you got you have the civil po- population the civilians suffering you know you know unbelievable uh outrages so how long can that continue yeah and, um, and, and, and know, part of the, part of the problem is that the Zionists are committing the outrages in part, trying to stir things up to the point that there will be a much bigger war, uh, which would make yeah. it much easier for them to actually finish exterminating the people of Palestine. I don't, as long as the war remains somewhat contained, I'm not sure that they can get away with getting people out of Gaza and the West Bank. But if things, you know, if millions of people were dying in a huge war, they probably could, or at least it would be more likely. And I think that's what they're thinking. Uh, so it's a, it's a position where if, if the axis of resistance, uh, you know, ex, uh, gets more aggressive, then that could lead to the kind of war that, that Netanyahu wants. And so that forces them to stand by while tens of thousands of civilians are being genocided. It's a, it's a tough, it's like a Sophie's choice kind of, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, again, my, my biggest concern is you know the the fate of the civilians uh i i'm concerned that on the one hand from the from the axis's perspective on the one hand um there uh there's the pressure not to escalate uh um not just because of the fear of uh, you know uh, nuclear war uh because when you get when they get desperate that's what they will uh, they won't shy away from that um uh, but also uh because um uh of the uh, of the uh, potential damage to infrastructure whether it's Lebanon or Tehran or wherever I mean Syria has already been bombed to the stone age but um so there's that on the one hand on the other hand you know you have the you know the civilian population in Gaza that's being starved to death so those are the two two conflicting dynamics from the perspective of the axis Right. And, and with the Red Sea blockade, uh, imposed by the Houthis, which actually seems to be a, a pretty viable strategy because the more the Americans come in and fight the, uh, the Yemeni Navy, uh, the higher the oil prices go, you know, the, the less trade goes through there. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a tar baby situation. Yeah. I mean, that's, that has been really a godsend, um, uh, for, for Britain and the U.S. to entangle themselves in that quagmire because, uh, you know, before it was just, 
ships that were uh, sailing to um, Eliot, you know, to Israel. Whereas now it's basically uh, uh, all shipping has come to an end just by America uh, throwing that first volley of missiles. There you go. So Joe zone. Biden is blockading the Red Sea. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Joe. Joe's provoking a, a global <laughs> crisis, which will ultimately, you know, force the world to stop the Israeli genocide. So maybe uh, maybe Joe's secretly conspiring with the Houthis, and if we find any proof, we'll uh, definitely air it right here on Truths You Had Radio. We're at the end of the show now. Thank you, Blake Archer-Williams. Okay. It's great uh, talking with you. God bless. Look forward to right. hopefully uh, meeting up with you in person in the not-too-distant future. Inshallah. Absolutely. Good to talk to you, too, uh, Okay, Kevin. take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Blake Archer-Williams. Go to truthshehad.com and click on the radio link to get to the radio show program with this particular listing, and you'll find a link to his books. Back in the second hour with Charles Upton, the noted beatnik poet turned Sufi Islamic scholar. Stick around.